0: It's Tuesday, the 20th of February, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Poon More than 6,000 trainee doctors have submitted their resignations in protest of the government's plan to increase medical school students. Surgeries are already seeing delays. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. As Donald Trump continues his march towards the Republican Party nomination for president, we explore what a second Trump presidency could mean for South Korea in our In Depth Today. And coming up for Hallyu highlights, we discuss controversy and bodily fluids at a local awards show, a crowning moment for Jungkook, and how the government is aiming to tackle inflation. Let's begin Career24. Thousands of trainee doctors submitted their resignations and many walked off their jobs uh, this is in protest of the government's plan to increase the medical school admissions quota. With the move set to adversely impact the medical service sector and endanger public lives, the government has ordered doctors to return to their duties or face consequences. For more on this story and other headlines from today, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Chair. Daniel, hello. Hello there, Django. Let's start with the latest figures related
1: to this massive protest by the medical community. Yes, according to an inspection by the Central Accident Management Headquarters of 100 major teaching hospitals, 6,415 trainee doctors submitted resignation as of 11 p.m. Monday. That's some 55% of around 13,000 trainee doctors in the entire nation. Of 6,415 trainee doctors, 1,630 have left their jobs as of 6 a.m. Tuesday. In accordance with the health ministry's order prohibiting hospitals from accepting the collective letters of resignation, none of the letters by the training doctors were officially accepted. As of Tuesday, the ministry issued a back to work order for 831 trainee doctors. More to be issued after on-site inspections of teaching schools nationwide. Licenses will be suspended if they don't return to their duties. Some patients have already seen delays in surgeries and other treatments. Around 25 operations reportedly canceled due to the collective action as of 6 p.m. Monday, based on calls at the Doctors Group Action Damage Reporting and Support Center. Along with the trainee doctors, med students nationwide also joined in. Over 1,100 students from seven medical schools applying for a leave of absence. The Minister of Education requested schools to strictly manage student group activities in accordance with regulations.
0: As concerns over the disruptions to medical care grows, President Yoon sang yeol has called on trainee doctors to call off their collective action. What did he say?
1: During Tuesday's cabinet meeting, he emphasized trainee doctors are key players in the medical field and med students are key players in the future of medicine, so they should not hold the people's lives and health hostage by taking such collective action. You also know, noted the government's plan to increase the annual admissions quota by 2000 starting next year from the current 3058 is still far short of meeting the necessary figures.
0: We'll continue to watch how the collective action by the doctors develop, as well as how hospital care is affected in the days to come. Let's turn now to some key figures. We're keeping an eye out for the upcoming elections. The co-chair of the new Reform Party, Inagyeon, has announced his withdrawal from the merger with the NRP after conflict with co-chair Ejeonsa. Over the authority to lead the party's election campaign. So, can you tell us more?
1: Yes, the withdrawal comes just 11 days after the former DP chief declared a union with the new party led by ex PPP leader Ijun Sok ahead of the April general elections. Ian said in a press conference on Tuesday he will return to the new future party that he and a splinter group of former and current DP lawmakers launched early this month and also to establish election campaign system as soon as possible. The former PM's move comes after the new reform party decided. On Monday, to delegate to co chair Ijun Suk authority over the party's campaigns and policies.
0: After Inagyan announced his decision to leave the party, co chair Ijun Suk also issued a public apology. Can you tell us more?
1: So, this is from a press conference held on Tuesday. Ijun Suk said he does not intend to criticize anyone, instead, he should reflect on whether he had been overconfident and arrogant regarding the merger. He pledged to ensure the new reform party proves itself to be a Good alternative choice by creating high quality policies and clear messages. He also wished the best for Inagun and his party. Let's
0: turn to some other news now. A Korean victim of Japan's wartime forced labor received a Japanese firm's court deposit money as compensation in accordance with a South Korean Supreme
1: Court ruling that ordered liable Japanese firms to pay damages to the victims. On Tuesday, the victim surnamed E withdrew 60 million won, or around 45,000 US dollars, deposited to the Seoul Central District Court by Japanese industrial and engineering company Hitachi Zosen. Last December, the Supreme Court ordered the company to pay E. 50 million won in damages and delayed interest. Steps were taken for E to take the deposit of collateral the firm made in 2019 when it filed to suspend the execution of court ordered compensation payments. E's legal counsel said it is the first time that a liable Japanese firm's voluntary payment has been delivered to a victim.
0: However, the Japanese engineering company and the country's government have expressed deep regret over the Korean victim uh, receiving the court deposit money as compensation.
1: Yes, Japan's chief cabinet secretary, Yoshimasa Hayashi, said in a news conference on Tuesday that the payment to the victim puts the Japanese company at a disadvantage. The payment was, uh, according to him, based on a court ruling that clearly goes against the 1965 treaty that normalized bilateral relations. On whether Tokyo plans a larger protest over the payment, Hayashi said the Japanese government plans to appropriately convey to Seoul a stern sign of protest. An official of Hitachi Tsozen told Yonhap News that the firm is in the process of confirming the said payment adding that the company had expressed its regret when the South Korean top court had issued its ruling late last year.
0: In other news, the third Summit for Democracy will be held in South Korea from March 18th to the
1: 20th. It's been confirmed. What can you tell us? Yes, the presidential office revealed the date on Tuesday and the summit's plenary session, which will be attended by global leaders, will be held virtually on March 20th. On the first day of the summit, on March 18th, minister-level meetings and roundtables will be held, while the following day, we'll see workshops on the theme of democracy for the future generation. The first summit for democracy was held virtually in December 2021, hosted by U.S. President Joe Biden, with the leaders of about 100 countries in attendance. The second summit was held last year, co-hosted by multiple leaders, including President Yoon song yeol Multiple diplomatic sources said U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken could visit South Korea next month in time for the summit.
0: Meanwhile, the Kremlin says the car that Russian President Vladimir Putin gave North Korean leader Kim Jong un as a present is the Russian made luxury sedan. Aurus Senate. Yes, Sorry, can you tell us
1: more? This is also known as Russia's Rolls Royce, often used as a VIP vehicle for foreign leaders. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Paskov revealed the details to Russia's RIA Novosti state news agency on Tuesday. Roughly 170 billion won, or around 127 million dollars, is said to have been spent on designing this particular model that Putin gave to Kim. The sales price for most regular Aurus Senate models stands between 500 million and. billion won, depending on options. In Seoul, the government said the gift is a violation of UNSC resolutions, which prohibit member states from the direct or indirect supply, sale or transfer of heavy machinery, industrial equipment and transportation vehicles to the regime, including luxury cars. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Welcome to the Korea24 stock and forex update. The benchmark Korea Composite stock price index dropped 22.47 points or 0.84% on Tuesday to close at 2,657.79. The tech-heavy KOSDAQ rose 7.70 points or 0.9% to close at 866.17. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 2.41 against the US dollar, closing the day at 1,337.61. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr.
0: We've come now to Global News Roundup. Where well, we look beyond Korea to talk about headlines from around the world. And joining us for that in the studio is our KBS World Radio news editor, Koo Hijin. Hijin, hello. Hello, channel. We begin with the situation in the Middle East. Arab nations led by Algeria have drafted a UN resolution for a vote at the Security Council demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. The US will likely veto the bill as it has circulated its own for a temporary ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. So what can you tell us?
2: Well, according to CNN, the Associated Press and Al Jazeera, the Security Council scheduled the vote on the Arab-backed resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire at 1500 GMT Tuesday. That's midnight Wednesday, career time. The resolution also demands the immediate release of all hostages taken during Hamas' uh, surprise October 7th attack in southern Israel calls for an unhindered humanitarian access throughout Gaza and reiterates council demands that Israel and Hamas scrupulously comply with international law, especially the protection of civilians. Without naming either party, it condemns all acts of terrorism. Arab nations, supported by many of the 193 UN member nations, have been demanding a ceasefire for months as Israel's military offensive has intensified in response to the Hamas attack that killed 1,200 people and saw some 250 others taken hostage. Now, U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas Greenfield said the Biden administration will veto the initial bill because it may interfere with ongoing U.S. negotiations to ad- arrange a deal between the warring parties that would bring at least a six-week halt to hostilities and release all hostages.
0: And what if the draft is circulated by the U.S. in a surprise move? What is the main difference?
2: Well, Washington's issue with the existing resolution is that it's quote-unquote not practicable. The U.S. bill calls for a temporary ceasefire, as soon as practicable, linked to the release of all hostages and the lifting of all uh, restrictions on the delivery of humanitarian aid. This falls short of the wishes of most other Security Council members who want an immediate ceasefire. U.S. Deputy uh, Ambassador Robert Wood told several reporters Monday that the Arab-backed resolution is not an effective mechanism for trying to do these three things that we want to see happen, which is get hostages out, more aid in, and a lengthy pause to this conflict. The U.S. bill warns against an Israeli ground incursion into Rafah, where hundreds of thousands of displaced Palestinians have fled over the course of the conflict. The number of Palestinians killed has surpassed uh, 29,000 so far, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, which doesn't distinguish between civilians and combatants, but say the majority are women and children.
0: Well, we'll continue to watch for developments at the UN Security Council and more importantly, of course, Gaza. But in the meantime, we head over to the Caribbean next. A judge in Haiti responsible for investigating the 2021 assassination of President Jovenel Moise has indicted his widow, Martin Moyes, an ex-Prime Minister and the former chief of Haiti's National Police, among others. Can you elaborate?
2: Well, according to AP and Reuters, a judge in Haiti uh, responsible for investigating the July 2021 assassination of President Moïse has indicted his widow, as well as ex-Prime Minister jo- uh, Claude Joseph and the former chief of Haiti's National Police, Léon Char, among others. The indictments are expected to further destabilise Haiti as it struggles, to, uh, struggles with a surge in gang violence and recovers from a spate of violence protests uh, demanding the resignation of current Prime Minister Ariel Henry. Uh, the President Moïse was 53 when he was slain by gunmen at his um, uh, private home near the Haitian capital of Port-au-Prince in 2021 and dozens of suspects were indicted in the 122-page report issued by Walter Voltaire, who is the fifth judge to lead the investigation after previous ones had a step down for Various reasons, including fear of being killed.
0: Does the report point to any key perpetrator in this case? This has turned out to be an international case as it involved US nationals living in Florida who Mm -hmm. were also complicit in the assassination. Uh, US prosecutors last year described it as a plot hatched in both Haiti and Florida to hire mercenaries to kidnap or kill Moise.
2: Indeed. Uh, Charles, who was Uh, police chief when Moïse was killed and now serves as Haiti's uh, permanent representative to the Organization of the American States, faces the most serious charge, murder, attempted murder, possession and illegal carrying of weapons, conspiracy against the internal security of the state and criminal association. Meanwhile, Joseph and Martin Moïse, who was uh, injured in the attack, are accused of complicity and criminal association. More than 40 suspects are in prison in Haiti, awaiting trial, although it was not immediately clear how quickly one would be held following Monday's indictments. Among them are 20 former Colombian soldiers who were apparently hired through a broker in
0: Miami. And finally, we have a report saying that a Chinese man is being held in Australia over his alleged role in a tobacco smuggling scheme that generated 700 million US dollars for North Korea. What can you tell us?
2: Well, according to the BBC, Chinese national Jin Guanghua is accused of supplying tobacco to Pyongyang for roughly a decade. It is unclear whether he contests the claim. Jin is awaiting extradition to the US where he faces prosecution. US authorities alleged the tobacco trade allowed uh, Kim Jong-un's regime to make and sell counterfeit cigarettes to help fund its weapons program. Australia's Attorney General Department confirmed that Jin has been uh, detained in Melbourne in March uh, since last year and that his extradition matter was ongoing. According to US court documents, the scheme that the suspect was allegedly involved in was run through a series of North Korean state-owned companies and financed by its banks. Chinese front companies were then used to conduct transactions through the US financial system bypassing sanctions and bringing millions of do- uh, dollars into Pyongyang. If, if found guilty, Jin faces millions of dollars in fines and decades in prison.
0: That's all for our Global News Roundup today. Jin, thank you for bringing us those stories.
2: Thank you.
0: <laughs>
3: Hello, my
2: name is Anna Yates Liu, Assistant Professor from the Department of Korean Music at Seoul National University. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio.
0: Former U.S. President Donald Trump is leading the Republican Party nomination once again and he's even leading in the polls against the incumbent Joe Biden. As the likelihood of a second Trump presidency grows, concerns are growing for what this might mean for the international community. At a recent campaign event, Trump said he would not defend NATO allies who failed to spend enough on defense and would even encourage Russia to attack them. While those words were met with widespread condemnation by many countries, for South Korea, it raised the concern that he may force the nation to shoulder more of the cost of maintaining U.S. forces in Korea if re-elected. To get some expert analysis on Trump's possible return to the White House and what a second term could mean for South Korea, we have two guests joining us on the line. First, we have Troy Stangerone, Senior Director and Fellow at the Korea Economic Institute. Mrs. Stangroen, hello and welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. We also have political science professor Sa Tong Khan from Kyung University, whose expertise lies in US politics and US foreign policy. Professor Sa hello to you too.
4: Hi, hi, I'm good to be with you.
0: Okay, it's now officially a two horse race for the Republican presidential nomination between Trump and the former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley. That's after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis dropped out last month. But Trump is much further ahead in the polls than Haley. Mr. Stangroen, can you bring us up to speed on the GOP race?
5: So at this point, it looks like former President Trump is the odds on favor to be the Republican nominee. He has won in Iowa. He's won in New Hampshire. He is well up on Governor Haley in our own state of South Carolina. And he's also leading by significant margin in many of the other states. While there is a small potential that former Governor Haley could become the nominee, right now, the high likelihood is that former President Trump will be the Republican nominee. Sure. And Mr. Stangrone, why
0: is it that Republican voters favor Trump at the moment? What factors have made him the frontrunner?
5: Well, if we look at the Republican Party today, it's not the Republican Party that many have grown accustomed to and used to. And Much of this change goes back to Ronald Reagan and even just before. We've seen basically in the United States a switching of the parties to where the working class vote was largely democratic. It has now moved into the Republican Party over time and the educated populace has moved into the Democratic Party. So we've seen really a shift in the base of the two parties. And if you look at a lot of the working class vote in the United States today, Many of them feel that globalization has not worked in their favor, that companies have taken and shifted their jobs off to other countries, that this has taken and devastated towns in the United States. You've seen, as a result, an increase in drug usage and fentanyl. Um, There's concerns that uh, the American dream is no longer possible, that if you have a child today, that your child will have a lower living standard than you did growing up, and that would be a first in the United States. And so when you pull all of these things together, along with the shifts we've seen internationally with the what is generally perceived as the failure of the war in Afghanistan, the failure of the war in Iraq, and the costs that those have entailed, there's a lot of anger and frustration within a lot of the United States population. And former President Trump has been very good at sort of tapping into those anxieties and those fears and those concerns. And that's really what's helped drive him in the Republican Party polls.
0: Professor Sart, let me turn to you now. What do you make of Trump leading the Republican Party nomination once again?
4: Uh, Well, I mean, first and foremost, I I have to point out that uh, Biden is so unpopular. And then the polling shows that Trump can defeat Biden uh, in the swing state. Uh, What that means is that the, the possible electability issue surrounding the Trump candidacy uh, has easily gone as well. So, uh, uh, and then, uh, as uh, Troy mentioned, normally, uh, primary contests have some lanes. In other words, the, the GOP now seems to have two lanes, one Trump lane and the other traditional Reagan lane. But this year, there is only one lane during the primary, which is the Trump lane. So uh, what Haley uh, stands for, which is a traditional GOP values and policies, are not necessarily welcomed by uh, the Trump party. So that's where uh, the GOP uh, nomination races and the GOP inside politics stand for now.
0: And Mr. Stangron, you said there's only a very small potential for Nikki Haley uh, to make a comeback and uh, take the nomination. So you're saying then that uh, the highest probability is a rematch between Biden and Trump. What stands in the way of that? Is there there anything that stands in the way of that?
5: So there are a few things that could stand in the way. And I just want to add briefly first on what Dr. Saez said, which is that, you know, not only is President Biden unpopular, but if we're being honest, both candidates are unpopular, and the American public would much rather have a choice of someone else. Um, and they'd rather not be facing another Trump Biden rematch. But in terms of what could change going forward, one, we all know that President Trump is under indictment. There are ninety one counts. Um, should something in one of those court cases come to light uh, or he be convicted? We have seen some polling to suggest that there is about maybe 15 percent of Republicans who would not support him going forward. Now, that's not likely to happen soon enough to really probably help Nikki Haley. And it's unlikely that the Republican Party would choose at their convention to shift the nomination to someone who didn't win the primaries because those cases likely won't be decided by then. So you're in a situation to where there is a path, but the legal path is probably going to be too slow to really help uh, Nikki Haley. The other possibility that could change this, and this wouldn't necessarily help Nikki Haley, is we have seen, you know, there was the special counsel's report um, from uh, Attorney, not Attorney General, sorry, um, Special Investigator Her. He took and he had mentioned these concerns that he had about bringing before a jury someone in this documents case uh, in the investigation of President Biden that would seem as though they were a well-meaning but an individual whose memory was not good. And so age has been a big issue in this race. And so if President Biden were to step down, the Democratic Party at their convention could nominate someone else, and that would take and shift the dynamics within the election. But, you know, it's unlikely at this point that there would be a scandal big enough, given all the scandals we've seen with former President Trump, that would allow Nikki Haley to pass him. There's a small legal window she might could take advantage of if he were convicted, but that seems as though it would take too long. So there seems it's like there are possibilities, but it's a very, very narrow window for something else to happen.
0: So, Professor Sartre, what do you think are the chances of Trump returning to the White House uh, if we do see a rematch between Biden and Trump? How real is the possibility of a second uh, Trump presidency?
4: well I mean, that's the question i would like to always to avoid to answer <laughs> but uh, the prediction is always tough uh, as we as we have seen in the case of 2016. Uh, but uh, i would like to focus on the electoral college competitions this year which is not necessarily talked a lot about at this point of time because a lot of people uh, uh, seem to believe that Trump is going to win the presidency against the Biden uh, uh, presidency this year. Uh, If we turn to the Electoral College map, uh, here is my scenario for some advantageous uh, uh, situation for Mr. Biden, which is that if and only if Trump is going to return uh, the state of Arizona and Georgia back to the GOP column, and then add the state of Nevada to GOP for the first time in almost uh, many years. Uh, Even though that uh, is the case, even though if that is the case, as long as Biden is going to keep the three uh, Midwestern states, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, and then the Electoral College uh, count is going to be like Biden 270. And Trump 268, which is going to be a very kind of razor thin margin between the two candidates, but but again, uh, the the ultimate game of the rule is is who is going to win the 270, uh, uh, the the majority of the electoral college. So Biden is going to focus very heavily on those three midwestern states: Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And then in those three states, the big chunk of the electorate uh, who is going to be critical is going to be the black voters. So this year's election is going to boil down to what kind of uh, Biden strategies and policy uh, sort of gift for the black communities in those three Midwestern states. So it, it it's not necessarily about immigration is not necessarily about the economy and it's not necessarily about the NATO. So what's interesting here is that as long as the domestic politics or electoral politics are surrounding this year's match, it's going to be the black community in those three Midwestern states. That's my two cents.:
0: Mr. Stangro, President sure Ha has avoided directly answering the question, <laughs> but uh, how likely is it to, do you think that Trump uh, would return to the White House?
5: So, we have a saying in the United States that six months is an eternity in politics, and we're still more than six months out. Uh, but what I would say is that this is going to be an extremely close election. Uh, Dr. Sa is right, it's going to come down to swing states, and we've seen you know real you know polling issues in terms of how President Biden looks in those areas. There are some things that are trending in his favor, and so that may help him you know between now and November. But I think the reality is, is that, you know, this election right now is extremely razor thin close. The last election was, you know, that as well. Um, So, you know, the reality is, is that this could go either way and it could simply come down to turnout. You know, who is able to actually motivate their voters to go out and vote. And, you know, it's going to be extremely close.
0: Well, as the likelihood of Trump returning to the White House grows, the international community is bracing for what it might mean. And a recent comment has sparked much concern. As I mentioned earlier, Trump has suggested that he would not defend NATO allies who fail to spend enough on defense and would even go as far as to encourage Russia to attack them. Trump made the controversial remarks during a campaign speech in South Carolina, recalling a conversation he'd had when he was in office. Trump said that when the leader of an unnamed NATO ally asked if the US would protect it in the event of an attack from Russia, even if it did not pay, he replied that he would not protect the quote-unquote delinquent country and would encourage Russia to do whatever it wants. So, Professor Tsar, what did you make of Trump's remarks?
4: Well, I mean, back again, Trump uh, is a very interesting person or a very interesting candidate in the sense that uh, Trump is uh, sort of able to have American people, American electorate, uh, learn the lessons about the international order or their domestic political situations. In other words, during the first uh, administration, Trump administration back in 2017 through 2020, uh, the level of conceptualization, if you will, I mean, this is a term we uh, use in political science to describe how low level uh, the American public's perception or American public uh, sort of uh, knowledge about politics is. But uh, during the Trump presidency, the American public's uh, conception of uh, concept conception of level, uh, conception of american politics has uh, dramatically improved so if we apply that situation to the uh, trump 's recent remarks on NATO, now American people will get to know the fact that the the, the uh, last than half of the nato ally countries thirty one countries only eleven countries are meeting the their own guideline for the 2% of GDP for their own defense spending. So in that sense, uh, Trump's remarks on NATO is very interesting. Uh, I'd like to see how much uh, the American public is going to appreciate Trump's remarks on NATO down the road. But ultimately, I have to say whether Trump's remarks on NATO is popular or supported by Trump voters is not necessarily important even in the general election between Trump and Biden, uh, possibly, attacking NATO is not going to be any game changer. What's rather critical is, if and big if Trump wins the election, then, as we have seen before, Trump is a very unique politician who keeps the campaign promise. Ironically, which is very desirable in modern democracies. So, uh uh, the Trump's remarks on NATO, uh, uh, if, uh impact on uh, elections, it's not necessarily critical. What I'm seeing here is, as long as Trump is talking about NATO, uh, which means is that if Trump wins, uh, Trump is doing something on NATO. So that is the kind of important point.
0: Mr. Stangroen, what was your take on Trump's remarks?
5: So, first off, I think, Dr. Sa is right. Outside of perhaps the Vietnam War period, foreign policy really isn't a factor in U.S. elections. So I don't think this is going to have any real substantive sort of effect on the election outcome. Setting that aside, you know, so this really becomes a policy question. And, you know, if we look at what former President Trump said, and let's be clear, this conversation never happened uh, because there is no NATO leader who one would ask that question. Um, because they understand this is a collective security defense, uh, not a protection racket, which is what President Trump is suggesting. Uh, but what I think is important here is that, one, this reflects his mentality, which we saw during the first presidency, which is that if you're not paying as much as I would like, I won't protect you regardless of what our treaties are. And so I think this is a rejection of American values and American foreign policy of for the last 75 years. But I think the more concerning thing, and this is really, I think, the issue here, not so much because we have seen in polling that Republicans are starting to change their views on alliances and things as Trump continues to push this issue. But the bigger concern is that on Capitol Hill, you're seeing an erosion of support within the Republican Party for U.S. uh, foreign policy abroad and for allies. And I think that's the real concerning factor, because in the first term, You've largely had Capitol Hill Republicans push back on Trump when it came to foreign policy issues like this. You know, they would say that NATO is important. They would say that we needed to stay in these alliances. That's going to be much less likely um, if he wins the White House, specifically because some of those people like Mitch McConnell look like they may be moving off the scene soon, and they're already starting to lose McConnell specifically. Sort of control within the Senate Republican Caucus in terms of keeping everyone aligned on these types of issues. So I think that's the real concern—not perhaps Trump himself, but he's eroding broader U.S. political support for these types of institutions and alliances.
0: Right, and for South Korea, there is much concern about what Trump's uh, possible re-election would mean for the alliance. For example shouldering the enormous cost of maintaining US forces in Korea. Uh, there has been debates in the past. And when Trump was president, initially, um, he raised the cost of uh, South Korea, uh, paying, for how, uh, paying for the US forces in Korea. Professor Tsang, what do you make of this concern about what Trump may mean for, uh, the, for South Korea?
4: Well, before addressing the question of South Korea, if I may, I would like to add my two cents on, uh, to the, uh, uh, Troy's uh, remarks on the GOP, uh, situation. Uh, what I'm, uh, surprised about is the fact that the 22 GOP senators have backed, have supported the bill, uh, for Ukraine aid, which is going to be sort of, I mean, uh, DOA, uh, 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 that an arrival in the house for now. Uh, out of so, so out of uh, 49 uh, uh, GOP senators, uh, 22 GOP senators have backed Ukraine bill, uh, which is very kind of uh, surprising uh, to me, because I mean at this point of time, Trump is the dominant person, and the uh, as Troy mentioned, a GOP atmosphere is, is not like oh we have to still. Uh, support Ukraine, which is not the case. So in that situation, 22 GOP senators are still uh, following the tradition of the Republican sort of Reagan party uh, uh, sort of uh, policies. That is surprising to me. So whether I mean, that is going to dramatically change, even if uh, Trump is going to be in the White House, that's the thing we have to uh, see uh, and, and analyze down the road. So back to the question of South Korea, uh, well, which is very tough all the time, but uh, Trump, I guess, is not a person who is doing something out of nowhere. So I believe that uh, Trump is asking for a bigger amount of burden-sharing for South Korea, such as like I a mean, 60 percentage or a 70 percentage of burden-sharing, uh, and then, uh, we do whatever we have to do for negotiation for the 12th, uh, special measures agreement. Uh, so I guess the, uh, what's the real key here is the negotiation process between the, uh, Korean government and the potential, uh, Trump second administration, which is making, uh, uh the Korea-US alliance, uh, sort of more transparent and fair down the road. So we have to prepare for the scenario where uh, Trump is going to push again uh, the South Korean government to pay for more in terms of burden sharing. Uh, Given that situation, we have to think about sort of the future of Korea-U.S. alliance in the sense that, we have to be sort of the relationship. The relationship should, uh, should should be more sort of transparent and should be more fair, uh, if you will.
0: Hmm. Well, Mr. Stangare, what do you make of concerns that Trump would raise the cost of maintaining U.S. forces in Korea significantly? How real is that concern? And if there is no. Uh, negotiation that uh, no deal reached, what's the likelihood that Trump could even threaten to pull American troops out of Korea?
4: So
5: I think it's a genuine concern that Trump would seek greater contributions from South Korea. We saw this in the first term and the Moon administration was basically able to run the clock out on the Trump administration. That's not going to be a viable option um, if he wins the presidency again. And if we look at the structure of what's changed, as there's been an increase in demand on the South Korean side for more strategic assets to be deployed to South Korea, you're going to see Trump look at this, and this was one of the contentions in the first SMA negotiation with Trump, was that South Korea should pay for these types of deployments because they're relatively expensive. And so I think some of this is going to be a rethink, maybe perhaps on, what South Korea views as an appropriate presence of the United States, not the specific troops that are based on a permanent basis. But if North Korea does something provocative, do we take and bring an aircraft carrier back to Busan? Or do we decide we need to go for some other type of way to deter North Korea? Because these are the kinds of things that Trump will latch onto for raising Korea's cost share. In terms of this deeper question of would Trump take and pull troops out of Korea, We've seen, for example, former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper say that this is something that Trump has said he would do. There are, I think, a couple of calculations here that need to be thought about. One is how will a second Trump administration view China? If they continue to view China as a threat and something that the United States needs to contain, that would suggest that there would be a desire to take and maintain troops in South Korea rather than to take and pull them out. Now that being said, Trump often overrides his own strategic logic within his administration, so there's no guarantee that he still wouldn't push for a withdrawal. Also, I would point out, and this gets back to the point that we were discussing earlier about the erosion of support for alliances within the Republican Party. During his first term in the National Defense Authorization Act, language was specifically put in, uh, basically taking and making it more difficult to pull U.S. troops out of South Korea. I think that type of language, well, maybe you could still get through the Senate, is unlikely to survive the current House of Representatives given how pro-Trump they are and how much they fall in line. And the last point I would just kind of add to all of this is is that as we think through this, you know, this isn't necessarily about um, the issue of troops, but there's the story that we all know, because Gary Cohen has said this himself, that when Trump was considering withdrawing from the chorus FTA, he pulled the executive order off the desk so that way Trump couldn't do it in a second Trump administration. There will be no Gary Cohen to take and basically pull these orders away and prevent President Trump from doing things that the broader political establishment thinks is not wise. Because Trump will not staff a second administration with those types of people. And I think that's the deeper concern here: is that the constraints that might have been on him in a first term will be gone in a second term.
0: Well, we don't have much time, but I wanted to ask you very briefly, uh, just to wrap up as well, Mr. Stangro. Just broadly speaking, what does a second Trump presidency mean for the U.S.-ROK
5: alliance? I think there are areas for potential cooperation. But I think ultimately, once we set those aside, because I mean, we can see this on like high-tech areas and things that, where the Trump administration might want to cooperate or regional-type issues, this is going to lead to more tensions. Trump is going to focus more on the cost of troops in South Korea. He's going to be more focused again on what's already a growing trade deficit, and he's going to be focused on basically whether we should really be taking and defending South Korea against North Korea. There's already been reports that he might just try to take and basically convince Kim Jong-un to cap what he has and move on. So I think this is just going to lead to more tensions in the alliance, even if these are all issues that ultimately are manageable in the long run.
0: Professor, same question. What does a second Trump presidency mean for the alliance?
4: Well, uh, I would like to point out that if uh, Trump wins the White House again, we have to sort of think uh, in a preemptive way uh, that the U.S. Congress may be uh, our good partner. So in other words, uh, whether Trump or, or Biden is going to win this year's election, we have to sort of turn around and make new efforts to make a U.S. Congress uh, uh, a good partner for the U.S.-ROK alliance, which is already the truth. But we uh, need uh, sort of more strategic sort of policies or options uh, surrounding the U.S. Congress. Uh, in other words, for example, like if we want to sort of guarantee the uh, Korea-Japan-U.S. Uh, trilateral alliance down the road. I think this is the right time to focus on the U.S. Congress to make any concrete and uh, the budget-backed sort of organization to keep talking about the uh, trilateral relationship even during the uh, Trump's second term uh, uh, period. So that is one uh, point I'd like to make. And the second point I'd like to make is I'm very curious about how South Koreans uh, will react. If Trump is pushing hard against the interests of South Korea or against the feelings of South Korea uh, regarding the US ROK alliance, uh, we already have some great doubts about the US, uh, which is not necessarily the same US we have ever seen uh, since the Second World War. So the Trump second presidency will make the South Korean public think twice about the image of the United States as our sort of strong partner so when uh, if that is occurring how South Korean uh, public and South Korean politicians from the uh, diverse spectrum of ideological uh, sort of uh, positions uh, how the politicians are going to react uh, to the uh, changing United States especially when we are facing the 2027 presidential election down the road so that is my point.
0: Well, we don't have time, so we're going to have to leave it there. Mr and Professor Sa. thank you once again for your time and your thoughts today. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. We turn next to our weekly segment, How You Highlights where we find out what's been going on in the world of Korean entertainment from K-pop, K-dramas and more. And for that, of course, we have contributor Bernie Cho, the founder and president of the Seoul-based creative agency DFSB Collective. He joins us on the line once again this week from L.A. Bernie, hello. It's good to have you with us again. Oh, it's good to be back. We begin this week with another music awards show, this time the Hanta Music Awards, which were just this weekend at the DDP, the Dongdaemun Design Plaza. And it's been making entertainment news headlines for all of the wrong reasons, unfortunately. It's been marred by controversies never seen or heard before. Or even smelled before. Um, I wasn't sure if I actually wanted to talk about this this week, Bernie, but we're going there, seeing it's been uh, on social media posts and online reports everywhere. So the gala event has been overshadowed by trending stories of fans heckling K-pop stars, fans fighting fans, poor crowd control. And yes, someone even defecating, apparently, in the standing section near the ceremony
3: stage. So, Bernie what happened two words hot mess um i mean well this should have been a a celebration of the best and the brightest in the k-pop industry but uh as someone aptly said online it really became a k-poop award show um not only were there reports of a poor fan who was lucky enough to get front row standing room uh position next to the stage but unfortunately wasn't able to get out to go to the bathroom and relieved um, him or herself right there and then and just literally and figuratively created a huge stink not only for fans who were just shocked by what they were witnessing but also uh, from artists who were so close and nearby that they could smell the stink Um, you know credit where credit's due the poor person who relieved themselves has offered to pay for laundry costs but by then the damage was done um artists had to deal with the stench for the award show um, on day two because of this person going number two and then as if things couldn't go from bad to worse um, there were reports of fights among fans um, during the live performance by zero base one and look whenever you do a live performance there's always going to be a risk that something might go wrong but my goodness things went horribly terribly wrong for zero base one because Above all the screams and the cheers and the shouts, some fans, or I should say, anti fans, managed to get their voices heard above all of this noise, demanding that one of the members, Kim Jung, quit, resign, leave the band. Um, Now, this has been an ongoing controversy for this one particular member, but the fact it made it into the live broadcast was bad enough. But then the fans of this particular band broke out in a fight. And so, this is, I think, maybe the first and hopefully the last time where the K-pop band, boy band performance ended up becoming a mosh pit. Um, and as if the stink and the fight wasn't bad enough, uh, there are reports that, um, people urinated on the spot in the venue and worse, there are even reports of used condoms being found and thrown around. And so, um, This particular award show is roundly being criticized for uh, the lack of crowd control. Because for anyone who's been to the DDP, the Dongdaemun Design Plaza, I mean, this is a world-class facility that hosts, you know, fashion shows and other award shows and huge events. But this became almost like an indoor version uh, deja vu of the World Scout Jamboree that occurred last summer, where there was heat problems and you know fans just passing out and it it got so bad that even some of the k-pop stars were giving water bottles to um dehydrated fans and so we'll see over the next few days um how these criticisms from the event organizers will be handled but this right now hands down was probably the worst award show hosted in the k-pop industry for this year and we're only into february so um yeah it'll be interesting to see uh sort of how Not just the industry, but more importantly, the fans react to uh, this particular episode incident. And I maybe go so far as to say scandal.
0: Okay, so it does sound like it was a very uh, unfortunate uh, set of circumstances, uh, a very unfortunate uh, and shocking event, really. How could this have happened? What could and should have been done better, Bernie?
3: Well, you know, again, as I mentioned before, I just think right now there's just too many award shows in Korea and the fact that um, you had too many people, both uh, VIPs, the stars and celebrities mingling and mixing with the fans in a venue, which although the DDP is, you know, um, known for holding fashion shows, it's really not built for large scale award shows of this nature. And so, I mean, it might say something about the fact that this particular award show, um, you know, the organizers are being roundly and rightfully criticized for, uh, how they put this event together because, um, just a lot of the logistics that were reported in real time on social media, as well as by news outlets and by fans, um, it's, it's, it's frankly shocking. And so, you know, right now there's a lot of, uh, criticisms as to what went, ha- what went wrong. And, um, so we'll see what comes out over the next few days, but, uh, an absolute utter disaster in terms of uh, an awards show um, uh, production
0: it was certainly an awards show that will live along in the memory no matter uh, how much we would like to forget but yes it certainly sounds like lessons need to be learned as well let's move on to an awards show in the us now the 2024 people's choice award was held in la on sunday And there were some notable winners from the K-pop world. Jungkook from BTS won Male Artist of the Year. It is, in fact, the first time ever for an Asian artist to win the main male solo award. And also, Stray Kids took home the statue for Best Group Slash Duo of the Year. So, Bernie, another solid year for K-pop then at the People's Choice Awards.
3: Yes, um, and again, this is uh, the, the name of the award show pretty much speaks for itself. People's choice. The people actually could choose, and in this case, obviously, the many uh, boisterous fans of Jungkook and Stray Kids made their voices heard by voting um, in droves to make sure that their favorite stars uh, won. And so, really, for Jungkook, it's um, both fortunate and unfortunate, fortunate in the sense that he is winning and is expected to win more awards over the next few weeks. Uh, but unfortunate because he's currently doing his time in the Korean military and was not able to pick up his trophies and statues uh, and whatever shiny things they give um, for these accolades uh, because he's, again, he's currently doing time in the military. And so, um, vicariously, he had to congratulate himself for this prestigious award. and. What was really fascinating about Jungkook is that um, he was, as you mentioned, the first Asian artist ever to win the very prestigious male artist of the year. Uh, But more importantly, he's a repeat winner uh, because uh, he had also in previous years won for Collaboration Song of the Year. Um, but, you know, again, once he has a few of these under his belt, uh, what people are now and I should say fans are now looking forward to is the upcoming 2024 I Heart Radio Music Awards on April 1st. And it should not be April Fool's Day because uh, he is up for not one, not two, three, but four awards, best music video, favorite debut album, K-pop artist of the year and last but not least K-pop song of the year. And so um, congratulations to Jungle and Stray Kids and uh, we hope we can report on more awards that they'll be collecting and picking up over the next few weeks.
0: Indeed, so we'll watch out for that uh, in April. Let's turn to some controversial government policy-related news next. The government has been calling on the subscription prices of streaming over-the-top or OTT platforms to be lowered recently, tackling the so-called streamflation phenomenon, the rising costs of uh, streaming platforms burdening ordinary households this obviously goes against the recent global trend for us OTT platforms raising their fees to keep up with inflation and finance their increasingly uh, large investments in more original content. The issue this time, though, is that while the government may be able to compel Korean companies to comply, Bernie, they're not having much luck with international streamers like Netflix or
3: YouTube, right? That's correct. Um, this is a strange policy sort of uh I guess idea that's currently being pushed by the presidential office. I mean, yes, I think we can all understand and uh, recognize that um, inflation is very much part of the economy. Um, But again, I think everybody understands, and more importantly, knows that um, if you want higher quality content, higher quality dramas, higher quality movies, that's going to cost more money. And currently, those OTT platforms, both in Korea and globally. Uh, have been footing that bill. And it's been a while, but many people have been pressuring for the fees to actually go up. Uh, in fact, YouTube recently raised their fees. And although some people complained, business couldn't be better. They haven't seen a, a dip or a drop in their subscribers. If anything, they're continuing to grow. Um, Netflix has been increasing their prices uh, regularly to keep up with their production costs. And so far, Customers have not been complaining. Now, what's ironic about this particular proposal by the government? Usually, when things of this nature are put on the table and reviewed and discussed and debated, it's usually generally for the benefit of local players. Um, in in regards to, but possibly maybe protecting them from foreign uh, companies' domination of the local market. But this is a proposal that'll actually do more harm to the local players. In this case, TVing, Wave, and Coupon Play. Than it is with the foreign competitors. And many are wondering, and more importantly, worrying whether or not this uh, streamflation um, uh, act, if it even goes that far, will actually go through um, because it will end up hurting the local players rather than the foreign players and so you know again recently uh one of the co-ceos of netflix uh ted sarandos was recently in seoul took a lot of photo ops with not just the president but more importantly with stars like ee jung Jae. he wanted to drop by to see what was going on in the set of the season two for squid game Uh, but this was a hot topic question that reporters kept asking and uh everybody kept dodging but this is one of these um government policies that people are just kind of scratching their heads and scratching their chins as to why there's a need for lowering the streaming rates for the consumers. When in reality, consumers want higher, better quality content and they're willing to pay.
0: Yes. I think critics might say that this policy has the upcoming general elections in mind with a focus on easing the burden of, uh, people are having at the moment with their uh, livelihoods. uh, But still, uh, perhaps people would uh, enjoy paying less for their various streaming platforms at the moment. Uh, But yes, we'll see if the government can put this policy actually into play or not uh, moving forward. Finally, let's go back to K-pop, because in addition to a string of chart-topping accolades for their recent release of their new album, I Love, a pop girl band G-Idle has also scored a smash hit with fans with the Super Lady pop-up stores in Korea and across greater China as well. And there are also now plans to roll out more pop-up shops across Southeast Asia and Australia. So
3: what's the story here, Bernie? Well, you know what? I slipped in this story because I wanted to end on a high note, but also more importantly, is this particular pop up shop for G Idol? The theme was Super Lady. Uh, this was right in front of my office in Shinsadong in Karusugil, and I walked by it <laughs> every day. And it really, that little intersection almost became like the new Abbey Road. It was like uh, so many fans, particularly fans from overseas, were taking pictures in front of this pop-up shop. And in the same way, people who want to, you know, sort of recreate that sort of Beatles going across the crosswalk uh, shot Uh, There were very much a lot of people trying to do the same thing, similar uh, for the the G Idol. But what's really interesting about this is that everyone knows that merchandising is huge in the K-pop industry, so much so that uh, recent reports here in the U.S. have indicated that K-pop fans spend more money than any fan of any genre in the world. But um, the G Idol women really took it to the next level because not only did they do, obviously, a pop-up shop in Seoul, but simultaneously – uh, they did it in many other markets in Asia, uh, particularly in greater China, uh, Shanghai and Hangzhou, but also more importantly, in um, other markets they're about to roll out soon. And so in many ways, g Idol has not only been sort of um, uh, showing that they can be a hit on the charts, but now they can be a hit in the shops as well. And so, um, you know, for fans out there in Hong Kong, Singapore, Bangkok, Manila, Kuala Lumpur, Sydney and Melbourne be on the lookout for the g Idol pop-up store. I have to say, um, I was impressed. There was a lot of stuff that people could buy, and boy, did they buy. And so um, I think in many ways, uh, g Idol and what they've done recently with their pop-up charts uh, have really just kind of uh, stepped up their game. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how this will go hand-in-hand with their chart success. They now have pop-up shop success as well.
0: Indeed. That's where we're going to have to wrap it up for our Hallyu highlights this week. Bernie, thank you for those updates. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next time. Take care. Sounds good. And that's where we close out our show. Join us again tomorrow for more news, views and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope you have a wonderful day. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye.